This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. April 28, 2020. A lot of information today for you all, so uh, let's get right into it. We had several economic releases today. First one was international trade and goods for March, which was expected to be 55, uh, minus 55 billion, uh, down or uh, compared to uh, the prior month of 59.9 billion, and the actual was minus 64.2 billion, and that was because. Exports fell 6.7%, while imports only fell 2.4%. So the reason the trade deficit widened is because we had a much bigger decline in exports due to this pandemic. Well, part of it because it was about halfway through March when the pandemic really hit uh, versus a decline in imports. So the global nature of the pandemic has really hit uh, United States trade pretty hard. The next release was Red Book Retail Sales, same store sales, a year-over-year percent change for the week of April 25th. Last week it was minus, or the prior reading was down 6.9% for this past week of April 25th was down 8.1% from the prior year. So worsening conditions in the retail sector. The S&P case, S&P CoreLogic Case Shiller Home Price Index, there's a mouthful, <laughs> was uh, uh, released for, for February today. Uh, in January, the 20-city month-over-month increase was 0.3%. For February, the consensus was 0.4%, and the actual was 0.4%. And the 20-city year-over-year percent change uh, in January was 3.1%, consensus 3.2%, actual 3.5%. So home prices were doing pretty good in February, but of course this is all old news, doesn't matter much for anything now, other than to say that because the home market was pretty strong going into this pandemic, uh, maybe the real estate sector won't be hit quite as bad, but that's not really um, not really certain about that either. Really depends on how how quickly the uh, housing market and real estate market opens back up. But before the pandemic hit, it was doing pretty good. Consumer confidence was released in uh, for April, and a couple interesting things here. First of all, the prior reading was one hundred eighteen point eight in March. The consensus forecast for April was ninety. The actual was 86.9. This is a record decline in this index. And this was from the conference board. But what was interesting was that the expectations index increased from 86.8 to 93.8. So that's that shows that consumers, while they are quite uncertain and pessimistic about the current situation, that the... Uh, the next six months will probably be a little bit better than what they had previously thought. Uh, I think a lot of this obviously has to do with the fact that uh, all these stimulus measures have been coming out from, from the government and the Federal Reserve, as well as the fact that uh, because of that, the stock market has risen. So when the stock market rebounds, then that makes people feel a little bit better too. So while the stock market and consumers feel that maybe it won't be quite as bad as originally expected because of all the stimulus and support from the government 
some economists are not so concerned. One economist from Michigan says that consumers are going to have to be more uh, are going to have to be prepared for a longer and deeper recession than they might think right now. So I have an interesting, uh, uh, you know, this puts out an interesting uh, conundrum here. And that is that, well, who is really going to determine how fast and how long uh, or how deep and how long uh, this recession will be? Is it going to be consumers or is it going to be economists? Well, in normal times, you would say econ or, uh, consumers. Economists can only forecast what's going to happen, but consumers actually do what's going to happen, if that makes any sense. But there's another caveat here. It's actually a trick question, because this time around, it's not going to be the consumers or economists that determine how long and deep this recession is going to be. Economists never determine it. They just forecast it, like I said. But it's really going to be the health care industry or the healthcare care uh, professionals and the governors and the president and, and his uh, task force. In other words, even if consumers want to go out and do more spending and, and do more things with their money, um, they aren't going to be the ones that necessarily determine uh, how much spending they do. It's really going to be based on how much spending they're going to be allowed to do based, uh, based on the actions by governors. Unless, of course, something happens that we really don't want to see happen in terms of, you know, civil unrest, protests and stuff. Protests are fine, but you don't want it to go any further than that. But I will tell you this. Based on what I'm hearing from people, uh, the leash is very short for this shutdown to continue much longer. And like I've been saying, I'm very concerned as to what could happen when people say, okay, that's it, we've had enough. We're going to go do what we're going to do to heck with your rules and regulations and, and shutdown procedure. We're going. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Are people going to stay compliant or is there going to be uh, a breaking point? So we'll have to see. But um, for economists to say, well, consumers are going to have to expect a longer and more drawn-out recession, hey, they, you know... As far as I'm concerned, the consumers know what they're going to do more than economists do. But that's what economists are trained to do. Look at the data, forecast it, use models. So we'll see who uh, gets the upper hand here, the economists or the consumers. And one other thing that came out today was Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index was uh, two. <laughs> the, the index level was two in March. The consensus for April was minus 38, and the actual was minus 53. So way worse than March and way worse than expected, like we've seen in other manufacturing indices recently. So that's it for the economic releases. Now uh, I want to share a few things from the Financial Times. First of all, oil crashed yesterday 27%. And the major reason was because, this is very interesting, uh, the United States Oil Fund, the largest oil exchange-traded fund, said that it would sell all its, future, all its futures contracts for delivery of oil in June, which is 20% of its $3.6 billion portfolio. And those sales will occur over a four-day period. That is pretty stunning news. 
Um, and it says its move reflects growing concerns from regulators in the CME group that uh, the futures exchange about the size of the USO's positions in benchmark futures contracts, given that a drop below zero risks wiping out investors' funds. Very, very risky to be in any oil exchange traded funds right now. Extremely risky. I, I invested in an oil exchange traded fund a few years ago, and after reading the prospectus, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this is like, wow, very risky. Uh, based on what I was reading in terms of how they use options and all this other stuff to to uh, to improve their returns and to track the market. So very risky, risky stuff. Only do that if you really know what you're doing. Um, another interesting thing from the Financial Times was that it says, shop closures threaten reliability of inflation data. It leaves a big gap in policymakers' ability to track how lockdowns and stimulus measures are affecting the economy because price trackers are no longer able to conduct face-to-face -face visits to collect prices. While big shifts in consumer behavior means the weighted baskets of goods and services they track are no longer representative of household spending. Very interesting. Statisticians measured the overall level of inflation in the economy by tracking price changes for a basic, a basic basket of representative goods and services. But they can't do that now because that basket has shifted dramatically as people change their, their buying and eating habits. Now, uh, it says this represents a big problem for central banks, which already face charges from some critics that their stimulus policies will lead to hyperinflation, while others warn that the world is falling into a deflationary trap that will leave indebted governments in deep financial difficulty. I'm more on the deflationary side of things because there's... Demand has been crushed right now because of job losses and people not being able to go anywhere. And if you're, if you're worried about inflation, well, guess what? If everybody's worried about the fact that the Federal Reserve doesn't have much ammo in their, in their uh, toolbox to reduce in, in interest rates to help the economy, there is absolutely no worry whatsoever about them being able to raise interest rates if inflation gets out of control. So I wouldn't worry about inflation at all. Maybe it it'll, maybe if we do see an increase in prices, it'll be sporadic and it'll be uh, for certain products. But you know, like beef, like I'll talk about in a minute. But not on the overall uh, level of the economy. And if it does happen, the Fed will be there very very quickly to stamp it out. So don't worry about inflation. Um, let's see here. It says it also means that governments risk underestimating the extent of financial hardship facing households. And, uh, okay, so that's it for that. And next thing is, oh, Latin America is having a real problem here. It says, Credit, the crisis risks driving 29 million people in Latin America into poverty. Nearly 29 million more people will fall into poverty this year in Latin America and the Caribbean because of the economic collapse triggered by coronavirus, setting the region back more than a decade in its struggle to reduce inequality. Weak commodity prices, the oil market crash, a sharp drop in remittances, and a collapse in tourism have all prompted forecasts that the pandemic will hit Latin America more than those of any other developing region. The IMF predicted this month that GDP in the continent would fall 5.2% this year. The poverty rate across Latin America and the Caribbean will rise to 34.7% by the end of the year, its highest since 2007. And the numbers in extreme poverty are forecast to rise by 16 million to 83 million. And that's just in Latin America. 
So compare compare the 16 million people that will go into poverty to how many people have died throughout this pandemic so far, which is, according to the latest, about 250, what is it here, 215,000 people. So yeah, death is worse. We don't want to see anybody die. But you also have to, again, keep in mind that there are also a lot of other people suffering in many other ways uh, that uh, aren't really being talked about all that much. They are starting to now, though, that's for sure. And it says Latin America is already the world's worst in terms of unequal uh, income distribution. And let's see, what else is there here? Um, unfortunately, there's more bad news for mid-sized companies. It says Wall Street warns U.S. rescue scheme will exclude many mid-sized companies. A swath of mid-sized U.S. companies will be excluded from a government program to help them through the COVID-19 crisis if rules capping their debt levels are not made more flexible. The Main Street Lending Program, which will be managed by the Federal Reserve and backed by the U.S. Treasury, is a pillar of the U.S. economic response to the coronavirus pandemic. It is designed to help medium-sized companies across America access liquidity in the coming months. The problem is that the definition of EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is a measure of profit, uh, uh, the rules limit recipients of government-backed loans to total debt, including MSLP borrowing of either four or six times EBITDA depending on the loan type. So basically what they're saying is once you reach a certain debt level, you aren't going to be able to receive these loans anymore because you already have too much debt in their eyes. So uh, so this is going to cause some mid-market co companies to not be able to get the relief that they need, which kind of goes back to the old uh, adage that, uh, you know, uh, when the tide goes out, um, we'll see who's wearing the shorts. Because a lot of these companies, uh, especially some of these uh, junk, junk-rated companies, uh, did not have very healthy balance sheets coming into this crisis, and now they might pay, might pay the price for their uh, poor ba balance sheet management because they won't be able to get the loans they need to bridge them through this uh, difficult time period. Let's see, that's it for that. Now I want to share with you uh, a few notes from an article about how charities are suffering through this pandemic. 80% of nonprofits have less than three months of cash in the bank. That is frightening. And this comes at a time when a decline in revenue and a cutback in programs is at the same time happening while demand for their services is rising because of all the layoffs and the fact that people can't work. Uh, unfortunately, there has been li little to no federal relief for nonprofits yet in any of the stimulus bills that have been passed. Uh, about, I think they, they were asking for about $60 billion in relief for nonprofits, and that, that didn't come, although they are eligible for some of the loans from some of these stimulus packages. And the article says that uh, 12 million people in the United States work for nonprofits. So a lot of these people, there's a, a, a potential for quite a substantial amount of people that could lose their jobs if they don't get federal help soon. 
And because of this, uh, they are suggesting that May 5th be designated a new Giving Tuesday as, a, as opposed to what happens after Thanksgiving. This will be another new Giving Tuesday. So they are really asking people to donate to nonprofits on May 5th to help them through this pandemic. Next up is some notes from a video that was uh, on YouTube. Now, this is very interesting. This is from a rancher in Texas. He's talking about what's happening. And I'm sure if you just Google uh, or search for on YouTube for rancher in Texas warns of a food supply shock or something like that, you'll find it. But I'm just going to share a few notes with you. He says, state officials will be helping producers to identify alternative markets or advise and assist in depopulation and disposal methods for livestock and crops. In other words, destroying livestock and crops because of a massive supply bottleneck due to the fact that many uh, producers are shutting down either because of fear of the spread of the virus or because some of their employees actually have contracted the virus and a few have died. So because they can't produce the beef and the chickens and, and, the, and, the, and the pigs, they're being forced to destroy a lot of these animals as well as crops. He says they're burying a lot of crops too. So he says they're destroying millions of chickens, aborting sows, burying feeder pigs, dumping hundreds of thousands of gallons of milk. On the other hand, he says, just yesterday, a shipment of beef came in from Namibia. But American producers are being told to destroy their cattle. He says, foreign beef is less regulated, lower quality, and less safe. And regional and local packing houses need to get back up and running. He's warning of a huge shortage of beef, pork, and chicken in the coming weeks. And uh, But at the same time, he's saying... Why are we being forced to destroy our supply while at the same time we're still letting in shipments of beef from other countries? So he's got a real good point. He's got a real good point. Why is that happening? And because of that, he's saying we need an origin of country labeling on beef. And he also says we need more and better inspectors in smaller plants to get, the, to get their, their quality and their, and their plants uh, running more efficiently. He says, we need people to get back to work before some producers go out of business, which could worsen and lengthen the food, su food supply problems even more. So this rancher is basically warning everybody that if, thing, if we don't get the economy back up and we don't get the producing back up, we are going to have a crisis of meat and poss possibly some crops. So it sounds like it's worse for meat than crops, but he, he did mention crops too. Now, if you were thinking this was all some kind of conspiracy theory, this is quite corroborated by a podcast that was put out by the University of Minnesota from, uh, that, were, that was uh, interviewing several, had, had quotes from several uh, people in the food industry. I'll just share the notes on this podcast. A lot of chemicals used to grow soybeans comes from Asia. Well, obviously, like I just mentioned with the trade, uh, we're having a big uh, slowdown in international trade right now, especially from Asia. A lot, and, and of course, there's the fear that what happens if we import something from Asia, primarily China, that the virus could come from, could could be could hitch a ride basically on some of these products 
from China to the United States. There's that fear. Is it real? I don't know, but there's that fear. A lot of demand for corn goes to Asia as well and to ethanol. <clears throat> so because we're not exporting as much to Asia and we're not nobody's driving their cars right now, as a kind of a, a double double edged sword there for uh, corn producers. 34, 30 to 40% reduction in milk prices, which is very bad for dairy farmers. It says the supply chain bottlenecks is forcing dairy farmers to dump tons of milk. And my, my question is, why can't they give it away? Why can't they give it to uh, food pantries and food shelves? I know that uh, the shelf life of milk is very, very low, so they would have to deliver it probably same day and get it out same day before it goes bad, but you would have to think that there's some way to not waste t all these tons of milk. Ugh. There's a lack of demand from restaurants, schools, and colleges, and cafes for dairy products. It says that uh, there's two sides of the demand equation. There's, there's uh, the grocery stores, which people are still buying milk and buying a lot more of it, actually, because they're cooking more from home uh, or at home. But there's a huge lack of demand from restaurants, schools, colleges, and cafes. So because it takes months to change packaging types and sizes for, uh, for grocery delivery from the other types, that it, it takes too long before the milk goes bad, so they just have to dump it. So I guess that answers part, that's a partly an answer to my question is why can't they give it away because it probably can't package it correctly to give it away. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so because those supply chains that deal with restaurants, schools, colleges, and cafes don't have the means to package the milk in a proper way to give it to uh, end, con end consumers like grocery stores or food shelves and food pantries. So I guess that's part of an answer to my question. It says, it says that 10% of pork production is shut down in, is shut down due to uh, coronavirus infections and safety concerns. Uh, South Dakota and Iowa were two big ones that went down recently. So, yeah, um, big, big problem. And a lot of these people that are losing their jobs at these uh, producing plants are low-wage employees. And uh, so they're losing their jobs, they're losing their income. And uh, it has been determined recently that lower-income people are at a higher risk of infection. So uh, because they don't have good enough health care, or maybe there's other underlying factors, but so this is a double whammy for these people as well. They're losing their jobs and they have a higher risk of infection. And so some of these, some of these towns uh, that have these big production plants are, their economies are, are driven primarily by these production plants. So the local economies, when these production plants set, shut down, uh, the word devastation was used for some of these local economies. Ugh. The price of hogs is going down at the same time that the price of pork in the grocery stores is going up. So because there's too many hogs backed up in the supply chain from farmers, the price of hogs is going down. But because that supply cannot be produced in the form that can be consumed and purchased by consumers, there's not enough supply in the stores so the end product, the price of the end product, the pork and the beef and the chicken, is going up. So, and because this is happening all throughout the meat supply chain, 
that means you can't just go, oh, well, you can't say, oh, well, beef is going up in price, I'll just buy chicken or I'll just buy pork. Well, guess what? All three of them are going up or expected to very soon. So there might be a complete turn away from meat for other products like either plant-based meat or more people just going vegan. Who knows? All right. Uh, it says food, food processing and distribution system has not adapted to change in an eating pattern. So like I mentioned before, uh, with the restaurants, uh, number of hungry people worldwide could double by the end of the year due to all of these problems in the processing and distribution system. And, uh, a lot, but, uh, on the one positive side is that there's lots of altruism and innovation amid the pandemic. A lot of, uh, Companies are changing either what they sell or how they sell it or how they package it uh, to consumers to kind of replenish the the uh, revenues that they're losing from their main products. So that's a little bit of good news there amid all the other bad news. Now there's some news from a podcast with uh, Newt Gingrich and Larry Kudlow. Not trying to be political here, but this is what it was. Uh, Larry Kudlow is assistant to the president for economic policy and the director of the National Economic Council. Uh, he's saying that they want tax and regu- regulatory reforms to spur economic growth. Infrastructure, broadband, and 5G will all be a part of reviving the economy. However, health and safety needs to be a priority. Reopening of the economy will be gradual. The private market will be heavily involved in getting the economy running again. Uh, they're, you know, private market is heavily involved, especially in some of these public-private partnerships that they've been talking about. Trump has been. Oh, I just uh, lost my screen here. One second, please, if you don't mind. And uh, let's see. Uh, my computer decided to start scanning right in the middle of my podcast. That's wonderful. Uh, so it blocked my screen for a second. Okay, I'm back. Here we go. And so it says Trump has been continuously meeting with business leaders for ideas and planning, which is very, very important. And I think he needs to do even more of that if it's not being done at a high level already. And he needs to pull back from these uh, these press conferences with the media because they're just getting out of control. I think that he needs to focus more on the business planning and let the health professionals uh answer questions from the media instead that's just my two cents there uh more notes uh states will drive their economies differently this is really interesting states will drive their economies differently you're going to have some states that are high tax big government liberal states versus low tax small government conservative states and he says it will be one heck of an experiment to see which model works better It'll also be interesting to see what happens with reopening plans and the impacts on the spread of the virus. In other words, some some states are going to open sooner and broader. Some states are going to open later and narrower. So this is going to be a very, very interesting uh, experiment um, to see which viewpoints and which economic models uh, work better. And there's a need, uh, we need the right incentives for businesses to invest and workers to return to work. Absolutely. Our free and open democratic society, small d, will get us through this better than most other countries. I believe that will be the case. Um, But he also says faith will play a big role too. So for those of you who who, uh, um, 
for who faith is a big part of your life, keep keep on that. Keep praying. And for those of you who for who faith is not a big part of your life, well, just I guess keep hoping that things will get better. A few more notes from another podcast. Or this was a webinar that I listened to today. Uh, this was on the personal economic impacts of COVID-19. 70% of people cannot afford an unexpected $500 expense. That is pretty frightening. 40% of people are worried about feeding their family, paying their bills, credit and credit card debt. All, all three of those criteria or all three of those, those worries had at least 40% of people worry about those things. Uh, more people are paying their bills with credit cards without the ability to pay off those bills in full. So they're trying to improve their cash flow while at the same time uh, increasing their debt loads. So just like the government, we're going to see probably higher debt in, in terms of consumer debt loads coming out of this pandemic too. So think about this. We're going to have higher government debt. We're going to have higher consumer debt. We're going to have fewer jobs. We're going to have lower Lower wage growth, if not lower wages all around. <laughs> Possibly, most probably, higher taxes to pay for all this stimulus that we're going to have. So regardless of what the shape of the, of the initial economic recovery is going to be, this kind of corroborates my opinion that I said yesterday, or a couple of days ago, whatever it was, that <clears throat> after the initial... Uh, jolt back in economic recovery. We're gonna uh, going out further. The next two or three years is probably going to be rather subdued and rather slow growth because of all of this debt that is going to be and, and taxes that are going to be weighing on the economy. Uh, debt will be probably for certain taxes. We'll have to see depending on who ends up winning the uh, election and uh, how much uh, taxes are going to be increased, if at all, depending on. Who's, who's in the White House, and depending on how much that administration actually wants to use increased taxes to pay for the debt. But like I said before, there's also another option, just not just completely canceling debt payments to China on, our, uh, on all, all the bonds that they bought. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but it's becoming more and more uh, discussed at the higher levels, and it's also becoming more and more obvious that it's probably one of the easier things we can do. How much, how how probable do you think it's going to be if all these people sue China? You really think China's going to pay up? It's going to have to be a international effort, uh, probably in the Hague, really international court in the Hague for anything to come out of that. Whereas if we stop all debt payments to China, we would have that money available immediately. All right. Now, on to the update from the for the coronavirus. A few things I wanted to mention. Fatalities have in the United States were less than 2,000 for the last two days. That's really, really good news. Two days in a row of fewer than 2,000 fatalities. And today, it looks like we're at about the same pace as we were yesterday. So maybe we'll have three days in a row without, with, with less than 2,000. The IHME model from the University of Washington, unfortunately, once again, has increased their forecast from 67,000 deaths to 74,000 deaths by August 4th. Um, the death count right now in the United States is, let me just find this number today, it's at about, where are we here, 
58,000. So it was 67,000 in their forecast. Now they're moving it up to 74,000. So a 7,000 increase. So while we are, are seeing a slowdown in fatalities, it looks like they're saying that this level of fatalities on a daily basis is going to continue for a while. One piece of good news was that Quest Diagnostics has come up with an antibody test that you can order online for $119. Just go to getquesttest.com. That's G-E-T-Q-U-E-S-T-T-E-S-T, all one word, dot com. $119, order the test. It will, it will not test for your antibodies, 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 it will test to see whether or not you should get an antibody test. Uh, how many words, how many times did I say antibody, how many times did I say test in that sentence? Okay, let me just read this from the article. It says, patients are screened online by Quest to see if an antibody test is right for them. Following the purchase of the service, a person will then be asked to make an appointment at one of Quest's 2200 service centers across the U.S. to have their blood drawn. The test results are available between one and two days after the blood is drawn. And let's see. So that's how that is going to work. So you can't get tested in your home. It will test to see if you need the test, and then you get the test at the testing station. Okay, and so what else do we have here? All right, so that's it for all my economic and coronavirus data for today. It's on to uh, my tip number 12 for how to stay sane during unemployment under the second commandment, which is learn a new skill. Today's tip number 12 is learn Microsoft Word. Well, I'm quite certain the vast majority of you already know how to use Microsoft Word. But if you don't know how to use it or if you know how to use it, you can always uh, brush up on your skills. So... Brush up on your skills on Microsoft Word, like I said yesterday. You can just Google um, learn Microsoft Word for free or learn Microsoft Word, and you can do it either for free or 10 or $20 or whatever on Udemy or some of these other edX, uh, Udacity, Coursera. I'm sure you can find some good courses on how to learn Microsoft Word. Very, very important skill to have if you haven't, you know, if you're not much uh, in terms of writing or typing, brush up on your skills for Microsoft Word if you are either furloughed or have lost your job because you will make yourself more marketable with that skill on the other, on the other side of this pandemic. That's it for today, folks. It was very loaded. We had a lot of information today coming from a lot of different sources. I hope you appreciate me taking the time to put all of this stuff together for you because it does take time and... But at the same time, I'm personally learning a lot too. I'm learning a lot about what's going on in the economy. I'm learning a lot about what's going on in the supply chains. I'm learning a lot about what's going on politically. I'm learning a lot, a lot about what's going on with the virus. And I'm sharing my lessons about how to get through unemployment with you too. So I hope this is good for, for both of us and we can continue this. And that you will please, please, please share this podcast with your family, friends, neighbors, and relatives because I'm sharing what I think is very valuable data for you, data and information and insights. So tell them to subscribe to my, my podcast, give a rating on iTunes, give a review on iTunes, send me some feedback if you want on my, on my website. 
And um, also, you can go back to previous episodes to find previous tips on how to stay on how to stay sane through unemployment. And I just wanted to mention too that there is more data coming up the in 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 the next episodes for this coming week. One of them is going to be in, uh, I, I watched another webinar today for about business conditions from the National Association of Business Economics. I will parse the data from that either tomorrow or the next day so tune in for that uh just a, a fair fair warning uh obviously the data is not good but uh there's a caveat on it that i will share and uh i'm going to also be sharing some insights from a webinar i'm going to watch on friday which is going to be incredibly interesting because i've been following two models one is the minnesota i live in minnesota so i've been following minnesota's model that our governor is using to determine what to do with shutdown policies. And that model is showing uh, a certain number of, is forecasting a certain number of deaths from this virus, while the IHME model from Washington, from the University of Washington, state of Washington, is showing a much different forecast. So what are those forecasts and what's behind those models? And that's causing these two models to be so different. Well, it turns out that there's a webinar going to be on Friday that I'm going to watch that is going to have the people who are creating and monitoring and updating those models, both from IHME and from Minnesota. I think it's the University of Minnesota. So it is going to be fascinating to find out what is causing such a, and it's a huge discrepancy between what, what one of them is forecasting and what the other one is forecasting. Uh, and I will share those notes with you. So that will be on Friday, hopefully. And uh, that is all I have for today. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Please stay safe and stay sane. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks for listening.